1: Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, maybe uh, do a little coaching. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Now, I always tell you, I always, from the beginning of the show, almost 15 years ago, I said, you've got to avoid the battlegrounds. It's hard enough owning the stocks of companies with obviously great fundamentals, but a battleground with you, you're met with infilating fire, interstitial machine gun madness count me out. Too much effort. Sometimes, though, you got to take a stand. In a market like this one, where the bullish animal spirits can bowl anybody over, including today, Dow inched up 30 points, S&P advanced 0.29%, NASDAQ came 0.44%. Some battlegrounds, even for me, too tempting to ignore That's why I've been taking a stand with Tesla! (laughs) And why I've gone back and forth with Netflix. Two of the biggest hornet's nests of our time. So what separates a Tesla, a battleground stock that I feel compelled to champion, from a Netflix, which I've lost conviction in championing for years at lower levels? Okay, all my career I have been fascinated by companies with vociferous bulls and ferocious bears. If only because they can be so entertaining. Three things distinguish these stocks from regular run-of-the-mill equities. First, they're cult-like. House of pleasure. I mean, you got people who uh, buy them because they love the product, not the earnings, and the product transcends simple analysis. There is no such thing as a price-to-coolness ratio. You either drink the Kool-Aid or you don't. Second characteristic of battleground stocks, potentially troubled financials. The real Verdun-like slugfests tend to have terrible balance sheets that can never be fixed by simple operating earnings, only by raising capital. (laughs) Third, battlegrounds tend to have charismatic leaders. Now, I've had the privilege of meeting Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, and he is charismatic. He's charismatic as all get out. The genuine item. Someone who's practically inside my head when he sends me what to watch on Netflix at night, Of course, he sends millions of other subscribers the same emails, but I I always think it's coming directly to me. However, nobody is more charismatic than Elon Musk. For better or worse, the guy's one of a kind. Musk's a walking charisma machine, orderly entertaining and fun-loving, and critical to the point of scathing. Sometimes I think he gives me a run for the money as the most sincerely insincere man in North America. Other times he comes off like a true believer. He eviscerated me once at a dinner party. It was different. So let's put both Tesla and Netflix through these three prisms. Now, we're going to start with Tesla because I need you to understand what converted me from an agnostic skeptic to an outright bull. About three months ago, my eldest daughter got a chance to drive a Model 3 from Oregon to San Francisco. she just sold her beat-up used Ford, had an always she's definitively non-car person. I know she felt trepidation about the battery and the 600-mile trip. But within the first hundred miles, she called me, that in itself is exciting, to tell me how much she loved being behind the wheel of the darn thing. She's never, ever expressed even a whit of interest in any other vehicle. Now she's bragging about driving a Tesla. I told her that I'd driven one years ago and loved it, but never thought that much beyond that. She had two words for me. Buy one. She took down all the features she liked, especially the widescreen, but nothing mattered more to her than the flatulence button which he thought was hysterical. <laughs> About two months later, and I, too, found myself on the West Coast with my wife and another fabulous husband-and-wife couple who could not wait to put me in the Gold Wing Model X. My wife, Lisa, loves cars. Oh, boy, is she ever a car person. She'd be crazy. And she was immediately smitten. Now, I have to admit, I loved the whimsical nature, the handling, the Gold Wings were cool. The drive was fantastic. She, what did she love? The flatulence gimmick. Oh, but you also uh, maybe a, like mother, like stepdaughter. But she also dug the "come hither" button that inches the car towards you when some clown parks his car too close to your machine. I felt the tug. Then Tesla introduced its pickup truck, I mean, its, its Cybertruck, which I thought was ugly as all get out. The press conference borderline disastrous. The company's lead designer threw a rocket, at its unbreakable window, and it cracked. I figured, okay, so much for the Cybertruck. But then we sold the demand, the huge number of deposits, and it's off the charts. No accounting for taste. That stunned me. I decided then and there, that was it. I'm done. I can't fight it anymore. I wanted the Kool-Aid myself. What about the financials? Ooh, the bears are always telling us to be very careful because Tesla's got a hideous balance sheet. So I checked in with one of the most skeptical CFOs in the world. You know what he said? He told me that Tesla could raise $2 billion in a heartbeat. Uh, this is not a company that's going to have trouble raising money. Plus, even the bears recognize that Tesla's about to have an earnings breakout, perhaps as soon as next year. It's the only car company with any real mojo, mojo per share. The remaining worry, the solar panel business. Tesla spent billions acquiring this from Solar City, and I wasn't going to play Solar City. And for years, it seemed like a terrible bet. But then my wife sent me an article this very morning about how Tesla's solar roof tiles are now as cheap as normal roof tiles. They're guaranteed. They look like normal tiles. Uh, And she wants me to get them, so we're getting them. If you believe in the product and you're not worried about the financials, all that's left is the leadership question, which brings me to the outsized personality of Elon Musk. Normally, I don't mind flamboyant CEOs, but I hated how Musk would tweet like a crazy person, taunting both the analysts and, maybe more important, the S-E-C. Fortunately, all that ended when Musk agreed to stop his incendiary tweeting as some, port of, some weird settlement with the government. Even better, on that last conference call, he revealed his true rigor without the sardonic quips. Uh, Musk, it turns out, is a great CEO uh, when he can get out of his own way, and that seems to be what he's doing. Cold product, check. Sound balance sheet, check. Charismatic leader, check. Check, please. If you're going to invest in a battleground stock, Tesla's got all the ingredients of a winner. Contrast that with Netflix. Now, this weekend, we watched the new Scorsese movie, The Irishman, along with nearly everyone else in America. And you know what? I I didn't love it. Great acting, no commercials, but it didn't really click for me. Then while perusing Netflix, I stopped on that spy with Sacha Baron Cohen, and I I binged like crazy. I barely slept. Maybe I didn't. Netflix makes some of the greatest content on Earth, so it's got the cult product thing nailed down. How about the financials? Right, right now, there are just too many of these streaming platforms, and that's jacking up the cost of content. With all the new competition, the cost of programming could keep escalating, like sports. And if that happens, Netflix will simply be a good product, but not a good stock. Finally, there's the charismatic leader, Reed Hastings. I think he's a genius, visionary. Unlike Elon Musk, Hastings does, doesn't have a long history of self-sabotage. But at the end of the day, Netflix only has the cult product thing check and the uh, charismatic leader check. I'm still concerned about the actual fundamentals in terms of the money that they need because of the wave of new competition and the rising cost of content. Right now, Wall Street is split on this one. Some predict the acceleration of new signups. Some see a slowdown or even a decline. And that's why it's a battleground. And I can't figure it out. I can't figure out who's right. Hey, this one is indeed too hard for me. The bottom line, sometimes it's worth getting involved in a battleground stock, but only when you have a truly staggering level of conviction. And that's why I'm now a zealous convert, a true believer in Tesla. <clears throat> but it's why I can't commit in Netflix. John in North Carolina, John.
2: Jim, I always appreciate your comments and analysis and well, I thank want to you. thank you for taking a call from me for what thank is you. either the eighth or ninth time.
1: Woo! There you go.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, hey, Jim, I bought Boeing after the first seven thirty-seven Max Jet crash, <laughs> sold it for a nice profit in February, bought it back on a dip in August, but after a six and a half percent decline in the past two weeks, and boy, it was down a lot more than that this morning, coupled with the continued grounding of the 737
3: MAX, and what we heard from hearings and testimony yesterday that is, I'm quoting,
4: impossible to tell when the 737 MAX will be recertified, resume flights, should I sell
2: or hold on to my shares?
1: I think you can hold on, but I have to understand it's going to be rocky, and we keep getting this delay, 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 and that's in part because who wants to check off on it? Uh, I'm not saying it's a nothing burger. I am saying that you're going to be... um, I think you've been holding pattern for a long time. And then you have to see how much they oh, You got to worry about the cash flow. I think there are better uh, ways to, to uh, invest in aerospace. But I'm not going to tell you to sell it. It is a great American company. And it will come back. It's just going to take some time. How about Isaac in Ohio, please? Isaac.
3: Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I've always uh, wanted to say that live on your show. Thanks for taking my call. Ah, people like to say it. They say it to me
1: all the time. And I yeah. love it. What's going on?
3: <laughs> well, I'm an owner in uh, CrowdStrike, and with their earnings being the best they've been since their IPO and analysts even raising guidance to the $70 range, I'm confused why it's dropped so about 15% since the report. Too
1: many uh, players I- taking, trying to take share from each other, too much money being spent to get customers. It has become crowded at CrowdStrike. I agree with you that it's a terrific cloud uh, security, cybersecurity business, but everybody wants it. And that is eviscerating the potential markets. Not yet. All right now, I am fascinated by companies with ferocious bulls and angry bears. And I am now bullish on one battleground stock, Tesla. Netflix, call me, as Will Force would say, sceptical. We made money today. I've been ball. Vol- it's been a real ball of year for that Palo Alto Network speaking of CrowdStrike. But what does 2020 have in store? I'm gonna talk with the CEO. And understanding millennials might be hard for Wall Street, but I spotted some of the key trends in the age group in the unlikeliest of places. I'll reveal. And yesterday I told you one of the most bankable themes in this market was 5G! And tonight I'm sitting down with one of the companies that can bank on that trend. If you might miss my exclusive and has many more things besides 5G with VMware. So stay with Kramer.
4: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at one 800 743 cnbc Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
1: What do you do when a company that's riding a powerful long term theme confounds Wall Street? That's the question I keep asking myself about Palo Alto Networks, PNW. It's a major player in the cybersecurity space. After rallying hard in October and most of November, Palo Alto reported a solidly better than expected quarter a few weeks ago. Then the company's forecast was widely considered to be tepid, and the stock got pancaked, plummeting from 250 to 220, single session. The problem? Management guided for earnings for $1.11 to $1.13 for next quarter. Wall Street was looking for about $1.30. However, Palo Alto says the numbers were misunderstood, perhaps even by me and I want to be open-minded. Same day, company announced that it's acquiring Appareto. that's a hybrid cloud security play for $150 million, and the cost of the deal is included in those numbers, which means the forecast may not be comparable with the numbers Wall Street was anticipating. I want to hear the other side of the story. So, let's take a closer look with Nikesh Arora. He's the chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Arora, welcome back to Mad Money.
2: Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so Nikesh, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty, uh, let's take a step back for a second. You were recruited to join Palo Alto Networks, Chairman CEO, CEO, roughly a year and a half ago. Uh, please give us an overview of Palo Alto then and Palo Alto now.
2: So, Jim, when I joined Palo Alto Networks 18 months ago, I remember sitting in the same seat and talking about the phenomenal opportunity ahead of us as far as being able to build a cybersecurity platform. I'm delighted to report that you know, what we've done in the last 18 months has even surpassed my expectations. Uh, we've taken a company which was a single product company we did a really great job at building selling firewalls and making them part of a data center to now having built three phenomenally good platforms and as you know in the enterprise space every successful large enterprise company is a platform play you talk about them on on your shows these are companies that become the fabric of the future enterprises and what we've done in 18 months is we've built a cloud security platform. We built a SOC automation platform, and we enhanced our enterprise firewall platform. So I couldn't be happier with the progress we've made on the product side. Now, the, now the opportunity is to take that product capability we built in eighteen months and go out and sell and execute on the go-to-market side in a flawless fashion.
1: Now, you talk about that one of your uh, conversations on Wall Street, where you have to incent the salespeople to sell the better, higher-margin equipment. How is that going?
2: Well, you know, Jim, I've been studying enterprise companies, and if you look at it, the product gross margins of enterprise companies are pretty similar. The true leverage comes from being able to reduce your cost of sales over the long term. Large successful companies have done that, and that is our opportunity. To do that, you've got to figure out how do you take a sales force and have it be able to sell multiple products in a consistent fashion. So we did that by torquing our incentive systems to get our salespeople who sold firewalls, get them really excited about being able to sell our next generation security products. And I'm excited to report that they actually understand it, they're smart, we paid them a lot of money to go sell next generation stuff, and they did. They sold $194 million of that in Q4, they sold $173 million of that in Q1, uh, which far surpassed our own expectations. When they did that, they didn't sell our firewalls as much because they were busy trying to make money on selling all the good stuff, which is phenomenal because that's the behavior we expected. That's the behavior we incented. Now, it's just a simple matter of striking the right balance between us able to sell our core firewalls as well as our next generation stuff Trust me. They know how to sell firewalls.
1: Is that why you think maybe Wall Street misinterpreted? I'm here. I'm talking about the 250 to 220 decline. I think people yeah. felt like that uh, yeah. you're you're selling the good stuff, but you're left the other side to uh, not you know, let's say you didn't make enough money in the other stuff. Is that a correct depiction? Or was Wall Street wrong?
2: Uh, I think Wall Street, uh, in true Wall Street fashion, is very focused on very very short term outcomes. Right. They and and you see this every day on the. The enterprise security business, enterprise companies from a SaaS perspective. Long term revenue, which is rateable and repeatable, is great. We sold more long term revenue, which we can book every month, and we sold less short term revenue, which is what I call instant gratification, which has technical impacts on your PL. You understand those. We had a $30 million shift. We sold more long term stuff than short term stuff. We still meet our number of $897 million. We beat it. So, from my perspective, it is nothing systematic all we saw was our people selling better for what we want to achieve in the long term and having taken the eye of the ball for the short term i take that trade every day of course i want to do both really well and we made changes in our incentive system to be able to do that we have not changed our guidance for the full year or for our three-year forecast we put out for the analysts we've actually raised our guidance for our next generation stuff for the year
1: all right so i have said good things about fortinet and, Cy- and cyberark Uh, I have followed the path of Zscaler and CrowdStrike. You directly have been taking on Z and you've been taking on CrowdStrike. Tell me where I may be uh, short-sighted in thinking, say, that Fortinet and and Cyborg are the ones to invest in.
2: Look, I think, Jim, it all depends on your perspective on cybersecurity. When I came to Palo Alto Networks, the first thing I was faced with was, hey, firewalls are dead. You know what? Firewalls are not dead. There is more traffic in the world, more traffic that needs to be inspected. You're going to inspect it either with a box or a software form factor or a cloud-delivered cloud, cloud delivered firewall. Guess what? One company in the universe that has all three products is Palo Alto Network. We can give you a cloud-delivered firewall. We can give you a virtual firewall. We can give you a box. You have to go buy it from Fortinet, Zscaler, and probably somebody else. So we have all the products that are needed. 18 months ago, we didn't have a competitive product enough with Zscaler. Today, we see them head-to-head in many deals. We didn't have a competitive product against CrowdStrike six months ago. Today, we see them head-to-head in many deals. We've gone from being able to have one product in the top right quadrant of uh, of Gartner to having potentially five products competing with some of the, the most innovative, forward-leaning cybersecurity startups. So from that perspective, I think you know we're just, just getting started.
1: All right, one last question. I, you have schooled me into knowing that, it's a 140 billion dollar industry. You only have 2.5 to 3 percent market share. Maybe I'm wrong yes. to even think about the idea that there's a couple of companies and there's a big battle royale amongst you.
2: You know, we're not a consumer internet business. Consumer play, internet plays with this you know winner takes all and everybody else has to wait. I just want to go from two and a half percent to 10 percent. I'll be I have a phenomenally great business. We're already the single largest pure-play cybersecurity company in the world, and all we need to do is keep building on that strength, keep building on the strength of the five product categories we built, keep executing flawlessly and creating leverage from our teams and sales forces to be a, a large cybersecurity player. Excellent.
1: I am so glad you came on. It's, it is great to hear from you. That's Nikesh Arora, the CEO of chairman and chairman of Palo Alto Networks. Now I think you understand that perhaps that decline may have been mistaken. Stick with Kramer. are more difficult than figuring out what the heck millennials are doing with their money. We know millennial consumers seem fickle. They sample. They try something. They stick with it for a while. Then they move on to something else almost in unison. For a while it seemed like they loved taking cruises for the value. But then the value got erased by price increases and they stopped thronging the cruises en masse. They liked camping, calling it clamping. Then they lost interest, jumping to other Instagrammable pursuits. They loved putting on makeup, storming the aisles of Ulta Beauty for the best of the best. Then they turn against makeup for lack of newness. Is it too caked? Does it look ridiculous on the finely tuned new cell phones from Apple? Who knows? Really? Who does know? There's no cohort of dedicated millennial analysts on Wall Street. Instead, you have to break down individual industries to figure out what this generation is doing with its money. While millennials overtook the baby boomers this year, becoming the largest segment of the population, they have a lot more trepidation about spending money than their parents thanks to the Great Recession. But if you're willing to do the homework, you can get some insights into what millennials are up to. That's why I want to go over last night's conference call from Toll Brothers, America's top luxury home builder, because they gave anyone who listens a terrific thematic approach to the industry and the broader economy. The thrust of this quarter, ten years after we started coming out of the Great Recession, millennials are finally moving out of their parents' basements and their own, and their own homes. They want to have them. When the company's earnings call CEO Doug Yearly referred to quote a growing number of millennials who are older more affluent, and more discerning when they buy their first home, end quote. He tells us these young people want, quote, affordable luxury. Wow. And there are a lot of them. Over 20% of all closings this quarter had one purchaser 35 years old or under. Now, this is no fluke. Toll Brothers is seeing buyers pop up all over the country. Boise, Northern Virginia, Denver, Orlando, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New York, Las Vegas, Reno, Phoenix, Philadelphia, Jacksonville, Seattle. Many of these places were supposed to get hammered by tax reform, which got rid of the state and local tax deduction. Well, that hasn't happened. People who have jobs and feel confident in the future are taking advantage of affordable luxury wherever they can find it. I think that gives you great insight into the behavior of millennials, or at least millennials who have money to spend. The best thing about Toll Brothers' call, it's all empirical, not political. These days everything's so darn politicized that it's hard to get a good read on how the economy is actually doing, which is why so many people end up missing the forest for the trees. But on the toll conference call, Doug Yearly gives us the unfiltered view and exactly what we need. If you are decade of cocooning, millennials want to buy homes that represent value, which is in keeping with the way they shop for everything else. The delay in home building, in home buying, delay home, it's over. The spending is just beginning. I think housing prices will remain reasonable because costs are stable, and the Fed said today they won't raise interest rates next year. Well, at least we don't think so. Once they buy their homes, you can expect millennials will go to Amazon, Costco, Target, and Walmart to personalize their new abodes. They'll even go to Home Depot, despite its not-so-hot 2020 forecast today. I think the despot can turn things around now that they're investing heavily in new technology and have come around to my view that perhaps they should be doing a little better. Whatever. Anyway, oh, uh, I think that the millennials will also use their cell phones to order the things that they can't pick up themselves. Millennials are changing the landscape, people, and for once, they're doing it in a positive way. But you never know about this surge in younger home buyers if you only read the newspaper or even watch TV. You have to go straight to Toll Brothers. That's why I always tell you, listen to those conference calls. They tell the real story. Marcus in Utah. Marcus. Big hey, boo-yah, Jim from
3: beautiful Park City. First time, long time. Appreciate all you do and how you do it. Thank my you. Stock is, my stock is Square. And I purchased it uh, near the top. And I've been in the house of pain ever since. Uh, third quarter was pretty good. Analysts are split. Part-time CEO Dorsey now on its way to Africa. What do we do? Buy, sell, or hold? No, you have,
1: to, you have to buy it. I mean, Square, it, it's, I think that people are frustrated by the leadership. It was a good quarter. And, and I'm not backing away from that. Uh, Twitter was not a good quarter, but Square was a good quarter. I mention those because they're both Jack Dorsey companies. uh, And, uh, well, I think that Jack should relinquish one if they want to go, but but that's up to him. That's up to him. Let's go to Ronald, New York, please. Ronald. Hello, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Uh, My question is, Roco, I got in about 14 months. I've been doing well with it but I don't know what your crystal ball has to say about it. I say don't be too greedy. I say ka-ching, ka-ching on at least some of it. All right. Understanding millennials isn't easy for Wall Street, but Toll Brothers has a good grasp on them. Read that conference call. It'll make you some money. Much more mad money ahead, including Mike's with VMware. What does the company have to say about the state of tech and the cloud, as we head into New York? Then Trade Desk said it expects China to be a top three market for the company. But is that still the case as the tariff debate heats up? I'm going to talk to the CEO. And Oil calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. My favorite cloud stocks have gotten pretty complicated here. Take VMware. That's the virtualization software Pioneer that lets data centers run multiple virtual machines on a single server. Wall Street had already gotten skeptical of this one in August after the company told us about a pair of pricey acquisitions, Carbon Black and Pivotal software. Then the cloud stocks went out of style in the Wall Street fashion show no matter what they did. But People didn't have much reason to worry about the fundamentals until about two weeks ago when VMware reported a really robust quarter. Seemingly muted guidance for 2021. This is the stock surge in the news that was right for giving up all of its gains, closing down 2% for the day. That was confusing. Since then, it's been going down uh, to the point where I got to wonder, has this been overly punished? Let's check in with Sanjay Poonen. He's VMware's chief operating officer for customer operations. Learn more about his company's prospects. Mr. Poonen, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank Good to see you, man. Sanjay. Thank you. Happy Hi, holidays.
0: Happy great holidays to
1: be on your you. show. One of the most confusing moments that I've seen, because even as you said yesterday in a conference called Raymond James, you wanted to talk about networking. You said, look, it's kind of a slower year for the hardware folks in networking. Jeez, but it's been great for you. I don't think people think that you can have a great year without the hardware folks doing well. That's not true.
0: Yeah, thank you, Jim. Our networking business is on fire. We've been uh, in this business seven years, 13,000 customers. You had a solid quarter, as you mentioned, 12% growth, but the networking part of it grew 50%. And what we're trying to do in networking is highly differentiated. It's sort of like the nervous system. We now have a networking stack that goes from the data center to firewalls to load balancers to the branch offices. And we've accumulated now a set of customers, 80 million virtual switches, We're kind of like the Tesla of networking. We're approaching this from a software-defined fashion. And our customers tell us there's probably going to be only two big companies at scale that matter in networking, VMware and Cisco. We're approaching it from the software down, and they're approaching it from the... Hardware up, but you know, today they announced something that may be going even further down in right. hardware. Silicon. I think if we continue to surface, uh, serve our customers well in networking, if you look at some of our largest customers, we're going to become the indispensable nervous system for them for all of their networking in the data center, to the cloud, to the edge, and you know, up all through the, all their applications. Oh.
1: I think that you've made two acquisitions that were what your customers wanted. So I was confused why the market seemed a little muted, given the fact that uh, Carbon Black and Pivotal, you've got to provide
0: those. I think, listen, everything that we do is for the long term. And what we did since the acquisitions is explain that to our customers. And we don't get perturbed by the ups and downs of the stock price. We're looking for the long term. Uh, We believe that containers is a logical move for a company that's established 70 million virtual machines. And when I was last in your show, I described the containers and virtual machines like ships in the containers in the 1950s. It's a good analogy. And security is sort of a lateral move. And if you look at what we're doing, we mentioned in our conference call, we have a billion dollars in security already. And we're probably not that well-known of a brand. So we can build on top of that in network security and endpoint security. There's a lot of, of, of change going on in that industry, as you know from a lot of the players right. that are going through different forms of their future. There has been no network security that's got endpoint security and no endpoint security player that's got network security. Enter VMware, we do something differentiated. As we've talked to customers about both containers right. and security, they love our vision. We're going to go keep executing. May our customers happy. Well, maybe we have to
1: just spend a few minutes on the state of the cloud. I think, judging by the way your stocks are, I think people are confused
0: about the state of the cloud, where we are. Let me make it Sesame Street simple. Okay. Uh, I just came back from uh, Amazon reInvent. Right. It's sort of considered often the mecca of all shows. Right. And if you talk to the customers who went there and to VMworld, we had all of our VMworlds, 100,000 customers come to all of them, maybe a million people watching it. There are two key words that customers are telling me. First off, they want to understand migration. Migrate. And the other is modernize. It's the M&M, okay? Okay. The migrate and modernize motion is what customers want to understand. We are that de facto standard for how customers can migrate in the cloud. Large customers like Freddie Mac talked about how they're going to migrate to the cloud. Hundreds of their applications in record time. If you were to do this with other conventional methods, it would take you years upon years. We could do this now in months. Uh, we can do it thirty to fifty percent significantly cheaper. So we think that this is going to be the migrate part, and the modernized part comes with container technologies like the one we're acquiring from Pivotal. These are the two verbs that we think customers are all going to like from VMware.
1: All right, then let's go back to another way. There was a piece by uh, Piper Jaffray which just said. Governance Dynamics Keeps a Floor and Ceiling on Shares, talking about the idea that with Dell having the power to make strategic moves of your company, that could pressure aware shares potentially. But there's been no reason for Michael
0: Dell to pressure VMware shares. Well, I'll tell you, first off, there's a misperception that VMware is sort of, you know, tied to the hardware economy. Right. If anything, virtualization abstracts you from the hardware economy. So de- depending on how the hardware players do, we are a software-defined company. You need us in good times or bad times. On your show a couple of times ago, I said a dollar invested in VMware has returned $10 of economic value. Michael Dell has said on your show, and I've also said, yeah. what's good for VMware is good for Dell. <laughs> okay. If you think about some of these motions like migration to the cloud, modernization, we believe that both VMware and Dell can do very happy. We're excited about the partnership. In some of the areas like hyperconverged infrastructure, part of the reason we have now leapt to number one over players like Nutanix is mm-hmm. thanks to the partnership with Dell. And we're going to do more of that in terms of innovating in hyper-converged infrastructure, in the digital workplace, and now in security. Dell has announced that their preferred endpoint security solution is Carbon Black. So the partnership right. couldn't be uh, ever better.
1: Well, you, it, I do find, uh, you know, we had Nutanix on earlier this week. I know you watched the show. Uh, both companies, you've never been said a word negative, and you don't do that. I think that you kind of view everybody uh, as potential partners, it's always been the way. But how about something that is significant that could be impacting your business where you can't make partners, the trade war?
0: Where are we? Listen, I think long term we expect and hope that peaceful things will begin. But we have to do things that first make sure that we're abiding by the laws of the land. And if we're asked to not do certain ways of business, we're going to abide by the U.S. laws of the land. Ironically, our China business was growing. In the midst of everybody else was declining, we had double-digit growth in China. Incredible. And this shows the indispensable aspect of what VMware can bring to customers in every part of the globe. We're across every vertical, every industry, every country. But that said, the U.S. government's a very important customer of ours. We abide by the laws of land, and we will continue to do that. In terms of making our business successful across all industries and all geos.
1: One last thing I think people should know the excellent piece, how leaders can become better teachers uh, about the idea we got to teach the next generation, which I find is a drift. You're uh, walking and talking this theory.
0: Well, I was very honored when Arya Huffington caught that article. I think you saw it from Arya Huffington's post. Listen, it was a seminal piece of work that affected my life when Noel Tishy taught me that, a professor from Michigan School of Business. And I think some of the greatest leaders, Jack Welch, I'd say in this current generation, other people, are, other than the people I worked for, Bob Iger, Jamie mm-hmm. Diamond, they're incredible leaders. And those of us who've had success, I have a number of Indian immigrants who come to me and say, Sanjay, how have you been successful? And it's my job to lead and, and also great leaders are teachers. I recently had the privilege of doing this for a bunch of our vets. They came and oh. said, listen, would you teach us? And that was one of the most impactful days of my life. I was almost in tears listening to their stories and sharing them a small part of my life. That's, I think, listen, I think it's much more blessed to give than to receive. And we as leaders have an obligation to teach the next generation.
1: Well, I'm glad you said that. This is so important. ESG leadership, undervalued on Wall Street, okay? Undervalued, but not with you. That's Sanjay Poonen, VMware customer operations CEO. I hope now you understand that there are, very, there are some factors here that make no sense about where the stock is because it's better than where the stock is. That money's back in the It is time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down. it, time for the lightning round. Let's start with Lewis in Ohio. Lewis.
2: How about synopsis?
1: Synopsis, man. We haven't had them one. Whatever happened to synopsis? Doing okay. Yeah, that was that design automation company that I really liked. That, that's actually a buy. They are doing better than the stock indicates. Let's go to Julia in New York. Julia. Hey, Jim. I love your show. Thank you. My question. Oh, you're welcome. My question is about Lockheed Martin. Would Inexpensive stock. Great cash flow. Ah. Buy, buy, buy. Derek in California. Derek. Hey, Kramer. How are you doing? tonight, doing, buddy? Not bad. How are you?
3: <clears throat> hey, Go Team USA. Hey, my question's on well-trapped. No, I senior housing. Drop.
1: Ah, 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 ah. No, not after what happened with Ventas. Sell, sell, sell. Let's go to Larry in Florida. Larry.
3: Hey, Jim. I'm here in Boca Raton. And yep. I just wanted to ask you about care Therapeutics.
1: Oh, that data was week. bad. That data was bad. You probably felt it all the way down in Boca Raton. Uh, when I saw that bad data, I got so many companies with good data whose stock aren't going up. Why I got to mess with ones that have bad data? I need to go to Arthur in Pennsylvania. Arthur! Booyah oh, Jim from Pocono Pines, Pennsylvania. Oh Thank my God, my old stopping grounds. What's up? And for all the great work you do for small as well as large investors. Thank you. Cisco. In 2016, Cisco purchased an Israeli chip designer, Labor, for $320 million and recently also purchased... Acacia Communications, right. for $2.6 billion, one of the fastest-growing companies in America. Plus, they bought Lu- Luxteria Optic Device Maker. Right. It appears Cisco is shifting their business model to sell a new type of... Semiconductor, which they claim will change the internet of the future. And I agree. I mean, they're going up right against Broadcom, even though a large customer Broadcom. I thought the presentation that they did was very, very good. They're Also, be going right up against uh, A Net. They're going to do a soup to nuts plan. I think it's not going to be available for at least maybe six, seven months. But they are ready. And people, I urge people to look at the video. I think the Cisco presentation that that Chuck Robbins gave today makes me think. Oh, here in Minnesota. Ode here.
3: Yeah. Hi, Jim. Thanks for the call. I mean, thank you. So what's your call on CTSH? Currently, I own some stock. And do you think I should buy more for next one year? CTSH.
1: CTSH, no. I'm going to go. I'm going to overrule you there and and go with Accenture. That's my favorite. ACN. Be careful when you spell check. It always comes out as C-A-N, but you want ACN. Let's go to uh, Gregory in Florida. Gregory.
3: Jimbo, another big booyah from Miami thank you for all your hard work, my friend. Uh, uh thank the you. Company, the company I'm calling about tonight has got an immunotherapy drug called Palforzia. It's currently being reviewed by the FDA with some positive indicators. If approved, it would be the first treatment for a food allergy-induced peanut. Is Therapeutics ink ticker AIMT?
1: AIMT we've liked it from the beginning because we think the food allergies are far worse than people realize, and I do think it is a buy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the
4: Lightning
0: Round!
4: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. <laughs>
1: I love it when a company is harnessing one powerful secular theme suddenly starts harnessing a second one. Consider the case of the Trade Desk, which is a software company that helps its clients manage data-driven digital advertising campaigns. I used to think of TTD as a, a, a play on programmatic ad buying, but earlier this year the company inserted itself into the streaming video space, establishing partnerships with Amazon and Disney, helping them advertise on their new streaming services. They also are doing audio, which is growing astoundingly fast. And that's one reason the Trade Desk has been such a fantastic performer. It's up 115%. gain since we last spoke. Can it keep climbing? Let's dig deeper with Jeff Green, the founder, chairman, and CEO of TradeDesk. Get a better sense of his company's prospects. Mr. Green, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Good good to see see you. you. Jeff, Jeff, I usually don't do this. Your company is really on fire. You are doing many things, and yet, even though you have amazing revenue growth, you're also profitable. That's right. And most companies can't say that. Why is it such a not? A, why, is, why can you do it? Most of the companies come on and say, hey, we're going really fast, but of course we're losing money. What's the difference between you and them?
3: Well, I think one big difference is just culturally we said from the very beginning that we have to make money. We raced to go make money first. Right. And then once we got profitable, we took every dollar that we made and reinvested in the company. So our DNA was to get to profitable and then invest every dollar that we possibly could. And that's been a part of our ethos from well, the beginning.
1: Hallelujah. <laughs> what a refreshing breath Breath of fresh air. Now, I, I was going over with Ben Stoto today, uh, who works with his head of research, uh, that we're sick and, sick and tired of people playing this trend with Roku because they recognize the name. They should be with Trade Desk, but you are not
3: visible to the people who are seeing your stuff. That's exactly right. So Roku's a great uh, brand. They're a great product for consumers. Uh, and it's one way that investors can play the connected TV right. uh, uh, trend. But in our case, what we're we're offering is something that's very different, which is that we're an objective player. We don't own any media. Unlike Roku, unlike a Google or a Facebook, we don't own any media. So we go to the biggest advertisers in the world and we say, you need to figure out which digital ads to buy. Sometimes it's audio, sometimes it's TV, sometimes it's display ads, it could be on your phone, it could be anything. But we're trying to help them objectively decide what to buy. And because we don't own any media, right. all the biggest media companies in the world are partnering with us first Fantastic. to ask them to help bring advertising demand.
1: Okay, so I'm Procter Gamble. I go to my ad firm. And I say, look, I'm tired of reaching the same person who's already my customer, and I keep reaching them and reaching them and reaching them. Could you please help me find customers who would really love my products? Does that business only end up with Trade Desk?
3: That's right. That is is what we do. And, in fact, we work closely with Procter & Gamble. That is exactly what we do. We help them take their data and insights about who their customers should be, not just the customers they already have, but the customers that they want that look similar to the ones they already have, and then go find them on the rest of the Internet. And we... We are a play on the open Internet, which is connected TV, but it's also everything else that is essentially not Google and Facebook in terms of inventory.
1: Now, uh, sometimes we laugh that people, customers, uh, these uh, companies seem to know who we are and they, uh, their ads follow us around and stuff. What do you advise us on those situations?
3: Well, so, one, we are not following anybody right. around. That's what uh, I, I want to do, because I don't
1: want people to think that you're the opposite of that. That's and, right. And people might be turned off by that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, right now the Internet is going through a very important discussion, right. which is we have to respect privacy, and we also have to show relevant ads. Right. And, and figuring out how to do both of those is something that everybody's trying to do, Instead of just having a philosophical debate, we've just tried to enable that with technology. And by never touching the personally identifiable information, we never cross the line of showing uh, ads that are creepy or doing anything that we shouldn't be doing. So we certainly make certain that we're showing relevant ads, but we're, uh, uh, of course, trying to respect privacy and by playing in the really benign data that can give insight and show relevance but isn't going into anything Well, commercial. memo to those who do, the
1: trade desk makes a lot of money without
3: violating these principles. Exactly. Maybe they should watch you and do more about what you do. I, I think it's the only way to win long-term. Uh, uh, it's, it, it's hard to figure out how to navigate if you're just looking at all the regulations, but if instead you start by saying, how do we do the right thing? Right. How do we do what we would want to experience as consumers? If you do that first, it works every time. Yes,
1: yes. Okay, now, China... Everyone's running from China. Everyone's worried about China.
3: They need Trade Desk in China. That's right. So we may be the only company in the world that has partnered with Google, Amazon, Facebook, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Again, because we're objective and we don't own any media. But our partnerships in China have been really, really strong this year. We reported in our last earnings that we partnered with Blue Focus. They they do billions of dollars on the the rest of the Internet through partners like Google and Facebook. Uh, um, But we're we're partnering across China, and we're doing something really unique to China, which is unlike going into China like an Uber or something, who's going in trying to offer what is perceived as an American alternative Mm -hmm. to a Chinese equivalent. We're instead going in just writing checks on behalf of multinational companies, buying media inside of China for them as they're trying to tap into the Chinese consumer in particular, but then also helping those products that are manufactured in China Find a home on the rest of the open internet. So again, it's a play on the open internet where we can partner with all media companies, including Baidu, Alibaba. Oh, I just that's want
1: to it. circle back again: Amazon Publisher Services, third-party Fire TV apps, Disney, sports, overtime sports. When you
3: get, right. don't know what to do, right? That's exactly overtime right. when we most want it. That's you. That's exactly right. So one of the biggest opportunities right now in TV is that uh, uh, sports isn't, I think, optimally built for right. linear television. Right. Because you don't really know when it's going to be a blowout game or when it's going to go into extra innings. When it does go into extra innings on linear television, the, uh, the, the, the broadcasters are typically comping the ads for the I'm advertisers. So stupid. It's free. So that extra inning, when everybody's watching, it's free. Uh, uh, um, instead of doing that, you can essentially tap into new demand, show an ad that you haven't shown already, uh, and then be more deliberate about what you show and then, of course, make more money as the result of it. So uh, everybody's better off in using data and being real-time about the decisions. Okay, are. I know people think, Jim, how could you be so excited about this company?
1: I, I like companies that grow like weeds. I like companies that are profitable. I like stocks that are up 100%. And I like Jeff Green. He's figured out a lot more about this than almost anybody I know. And I like truth. And I like that you don't follow us around. And you don't demand know stuff. And you're not creepy. Thank you so much. Okay, that's Jeff Bees, founder, chairman, CEO of the Trade Dash. TTD, stick with
3: Kramer. Thank you.
1: I told you the semis would be hot and it's 5G. Don't forget Marvell, very strong story at Skyworks Solutions. Micron doing better. Don't forget the capital equipment stock, too. I like to say this always a Boomerang Summer. Promise, right, friend, just for you, right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Kramer and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe.